Welcome to Inside Scope, the American Gastroenterological Association podcast that will help you advance your patient care one half hour segment at a time. Join us to hear from the experts, learn new skills, and stay abreast of changing best practices. We'll be tackling a different topic each month, so make sure to subscribe and join us on our mission to improve digestive health for all. Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Ayanna Lewis, your co-host for our podcast on increasing diversity in IBD trials. In this six-part series, my co-host, Dr. Aaron Forster, and I will speak with a variety of stakeholders about diversity in the clinical trials workforce and in clinical study participation. On today's episode, we're going to deep dive into the community GI's perspective. I'll be speaking with Dr. Erica Cohen. Dr. Erica Cohen is an adult gastroenterologist and IBD specialist at Capital Digestive Care in Washington, D.C. She completed her internal medicine, gastroenterology, and inflammatory bowel disease training at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles. She returned to her hometown because of her passion for improving IBD care in the community. At Capital Digestive Care, she's the director of the IBD Research Program and the medical director of Infusion Services. She created an IBD chronic care clinic to provide comprehensive care and mitigate care fragmentation. She's a fierce advocate for her patients and is passionate about amplifying the voice of community providers. Dr. Cohen, thank you so much for joining us today. Could I ask you to tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? Yes, thank you so much for having me. Um, it is an absolute pleasure to be able to talk about something that I feel so passionate about. So thank you. Well, personally, throughout my training, you know, I always saw myself as practicing in an academic center. But at one point, I really did realize that there's so much work, especially in the IBD space, that needs to be done in the community. And this is really where the change needs to happen and where I could potentially make a big difference. So while I was in training, I did have some exposure to clinical trials for IBD patients. But it really where I learned the ins and outs of clinical trials was kind of on the job, honestly. Capital Digestive Care's research division is over 35 years old, has an excellent track record. So, you know, I did not build it myself. I cannot take any credit for that. I've been participating in clinical trials since I started in practice. And I think it's really important, especially for community providers who want to have a niche in inflammatory bowel disease, participating in clinical trials will really kind of keep you in the game, so to speak. It ensures you're up to date and have experience in all the up-and-coming medical therapies for your patients. Louis Corman, who's a physician scientist at Capital Digestive Care, he mentored me. I started as a sub-I in a variety of studies and learned the processes, learned the methodologies, learned essentially how to, how to do it, and, and became then the principal investigator and the director of the program. So I really just dove right in, essentially. <laughs> Can I take you back a little bit and ask you how you became interested in clinical research and where did you receive your training in clinical trials? I did not actually receive formal training. It was really just on the job. As I realized that I wanted to create a niche for IBD care in the community, I understood that it's important to be involved in clinical trials to advance the medical therapies for our patients and to be able to offer patients up and coming therapies that they might not otherwise be offered. So I started participating in them in capital digestive care, taking a deep dive in, in what it means to participate in a clinical trial and just learned on the job. I didn't have any formal training. Can you tell me a little bit about how your access to clinical trials impacts your patients? I hope it has a big impact on patients. 
whenever I see any of my patients, whether they're doing well on a, on a therapy or we have to have a discussion about the next steps, I always bring in clinical trials. I do think that clinical trials should be part of clinical care. Patients love to hear about what are the upcoming therapies? What are the studies that we're doing? What is the community getting excited about? Even if they're doing well on their therapy, I think it's reassuring that there are things down the pipeline that could be even better. For patients who are thinking about next steps or, or need to make a change in their therapies, I always pepper in what our active clinical trials are if I do think that they would be an appropriate candidate. Just so it's always part of the conversation. So when it does become an appropriate time for the patient, it's not a new a new concept that we're always discussing what is coming down the pipeline in the field. It's interesting hearing you talk about peppering into the conversation with patients along the way, the use of clinical trials. You know, one thing that I've always been interested in is how do we build trust with patients when we're trying to get them involved in clinical trials? And when bad things potentially happen in clinical trials, how do you maintain that trust? As you've taken care of patients and involved them in clinical trials, how do you maintain your relationship with your patients throughout? I think you're spot on. Trust trust is paramount to any of this. And patients, I am very transparent in um, Judaism. It's kind of called the yenta, where, you know, not only do I want to hear about how their gut is doing, but who are they dating and and where are they going for spring break? And, you know, how is their job doing and like what's going on? Right. So I, I they know I care about them as a person. And I think it's important. It's it's authentic. It's true. I feel like I'm part of their life in some way. They know that I have their their best interests at heart. And so I wouldn't recommend something that I don't think they're appropriate for. So I think in its honest trust, like we establish a rapport and we have a mutual trust for each other. And I think a lot of this, whether you're in a clinical trial or you're just changing a therapy, right, to something that's unknown for the patient, I think trust is paramount to anything, especially in in managing chronic care, uh, patients with chronic disorders. But the other thing that is definitely true, but is it's 24-hour kind of, con- this is kind of concierge care when you're in a clinical trial, right? You are have access to me. You have access to my research team. We're monitoring not just how your gut is doing, but we're making sure your heart is safe and your liver is safe and your lungs are safe. And yes, you have to come in more, but we're kind of holding your hand a little bit more than we would potentially with standard of care therapies. And I think also that can be a reassuring saying, listen, we're doing this with you. It's not like you take this pill and we'll see you and see what happens. We're with you with the good. We're with you with the bad. And and I think that's reassuring. Right, right. Absolutely. What do you feel are the unique challenges and opportunities for community-based gastroenterologists when it comes to being involved with clinical studies? You know, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. There are definitely challenges in the community. You know, we can't leverage the resources of hospital systems, right? So we have to be able to be financially sustainable. We have to be able to maintain. This is a team sport, right? I can't do this unless I have a great coordinator. And sometimes if you're big enough, potentially a manager, because there's a lot of regulatory budget negotiations, contracting, there's a lot of back-end work that has to be done to conduct a clinical trial safely and effectively. So I can't do this alone. And we're really struggling, honestly, now with personnel. Personnel is a big issue, maintaining seasoned personnel. So I think for patients, the challenges are the same everywhere, right? There's hesitancy to feel experimented on. The term trials can be triggering. There's reluctance if they have to leave their primary gastroenterologist. There's study design barriers, right? Placebo arms, you have to go through all these procedures, the time off of work and the time commitment needed to come in. 
And I think that's probably not unique to community practice. But the practice barriers, potentially the physician challenges, I think may be unique, right? In your practice, you need to have buy-in, right? Your partners need to be supportive of this endeavor. They need to participate. You need sub-investigators. You need help with referrals. You need to invest in the infrastructure, the team that you create, the equipment, the software, and it has to be economically sustainable for everyone to want to continue to do it. So these are definitely challenges that might be unique, I think are unique to the community for the practice. And then for the physician, right, in a fee-for-service healthcare model, right, if you're not seeing patients, you're not being reimbursed. And so So it takes someone who's motivated to do this because it is a big time commitment. You really need to protect time away from patient care to make sure that your study is running effectively and smoothly and all of the the regulatory documents are are done appropriately and the consent forms and monitoring your coordinator. So it does take away non-clinical time and you can be managing a team, you know, which can be difficult. So how have you tried to mitigate some of those challenges in the community setting? Seems like it, it is a challenge for sure, but you've been successful in that space. So are, are there any tips or tricks that you have for people in the community space doing this work? It kind of ebbs and flows, and a lot of it is on your, your personnel. And so some, some groups have looked into site management organizations, which can kind of help you with the the regulatory, the study startup, the uh, budget negotiations. Some can also help with personnel, hiring and training. We are actually looking into that now just because we haven't been able to keep study staff and it's affecting our ability to, to onboard more studies. Or looking into a model, which is, you know, you hire someone full-time to run the clinical trial division. I think the other thing that would be helpful is that you want to you want to make sure that you have a varied types of studies, right? So IBD studies can be very complex. They take time. There's difficult in recruitment, whereas there's some other GI studies that might be easier to recruit because they have less FDA approved therapies. They could be observational or screening studies that might be less complex to recruit for that can help sustain the program a bit more financially. You're talking about is kind of a mix of different kinds of studies to make it a little bit easier for it to be financially sustainable for the group. That that makes a lot of sense. Yes. IBD should not be the main, just, you know, the main study portfolio. Understood. Okay. So switching gears a bit. So you have a large group practice in the DC metropolitan area, which serves a diverse population. How do you approach talking with your patients about participation in clinical studies? And what kind of reactions do your patients have when you recommend clinical trials? Yeah, so I think we we talked a little bit about it is that, you know, I'm always kind of talking about it in passing or giving updates or what's newly been approved or guess what? We have this now in our back pocket if something were to happen. This medication was just approved six months ago. We did the clinical trial. You know, this was our experience. I think patients like to hear these updates. They, they ask me. Then when it becomes time that, you know, maybe this is a good option for you, it's not a foreign concept. You know, I actually just had one patient 
you had to have a genetic marker in order to get into a certain arm of the study. And unfortunately, he didn't have the genetic marker. And it just took him weeks. Like he was upset. Like, why can't I get into this study? I was like, no, we're going to have to go back to standard of care. It's okay. He's like, no, I want to, you know, I don't know what it is. The spiel must be good or something, but like, it's okay. Like, <laughs> give it a couple of years. I know it's going to come to market. And there's someone elsewhere who's like, can I just wait? wait on steroids or wait on something to see until I, you know, study is up and running, right? I, that study sounds good for me. So, so I think it's, it's really how you discuss clinical trials. You know, we don't pick studies that are early phases, right? We're picking phase three, phase four, maybe a phase two, that is a cousin of an already approved therapy. So we're not picking things that are so foreign or new to the space that it can seem daunting. There's a reassurance in the type of studies you pick that can be I think, easier to digest for patients, if that makes sense. From what I'm hearing, it seems like you almost create a sense of excitement for the patients. So they're like ready and, and willing yes. to participate in clinical trials when they come. Yeah, it just, it takes establishing a rapport and talking about it over time, right? Great. So I know you believe that clinical studies should be a part of clinical care rather than a last resort option. I wanted to ask you a little bit about how you came to this perspective. We, we've talked a little bit about this in terms of implementation, but let's talk a little bit more about why you think, why you take this perspective. You know, we all have these patients who got a colectomy in the early biologic era. And you always wonder, like, could you have saved that colon, right? If they, this just one therapy was available, maybe this would be different right now. And, it, you know, it's not to say that that's a definite, but clinical trials is how we get more therapies to market, how we push the envelope of the effectiveness of our therapies, how we get to new milestones of not only endoscopic healing, histologic healing, transmural healing, right? We have to keep pushing the bar of how far our medications can go. And that really has to go through a rigorous process of clinical trials to get FDA approval. And so and so I tell patients, not only are we helping you in, in the now, but you are doing a service not only to the scientific community, but to people you know and to the IBD community. And again, these are typically studies where the the drug is most likely to come to market, right? So they're in the latter phases of clinical trials. So giving the patient a kind of a sense of control in a very powerless situation almost that they can really be doing good that goes beyond their own health. Diversifying clinical study participation is a hot discussion topic right now, particularly in IBD research. What are your thoughts on the ways that we can diversify participation and why haven't some of these solutions been implemented already? Tough one. I feel very poorly equipped to answer this question, honestly. Um, and I think that's telling a lot because I do a lot of inflammatory bowel disease work. But first and foremost, I assume we're talking about racial diversity, but I think diversity comes in many forms, right? There's an issue of diversity of IBD phenotypes, and I'd be remiss if we didn't kind of address this as well. You know, many patients with IBD do not meet the strict criteria for inclusion into a clinical trial. And those are often the patients that need the therapies the most. I think in one study, it was like 40% of patients surveyed actually would meet inclusion for a criteria, right? Patients with active perianal disease, stricturing disease, recent surgeries, pouches, ostomies. You know, there's a great need to be able to, in some way, include these patients as potentially exploratory endpoints in the study design um, because they often need the therapies the most and have to have to wait the longest to be able to, to receive them. No, I, I think that that's an important point. You know, diversity means a lot of things to different people. And I think 
when we talk about diversity in clinical trials, we're not just talking about racial diversity. Mm-hmm. You know, we're talking about gender diversity, diversity of location, right? Rural yes. versus urban settings as well. So I think all of that is important. The idea of racial diversity, though, I think is is one that's been a little bit tougher for us to crack. Mm-hmm. And with all that we were seeing during you know, the COVID-19 pandemic, I think is something that's kind of come to the forefront. Do you have any thoughts about how we can address that? And, and, and what, what do you think is standing in the way of us increasing that diversity? I do. I think there's probably things we can do on an individual level and also kind of more on a systems level. But on an individual level, again, we talked about it. I really think this all comes down to trust and establishing a rapport with a patient. And this takes time. And the term, you know, clinical trials, trials can be triggering, right? It triggers images of injustice or issues with the justice system, historic eras of, you know, mistrust of healthcare, and I'm sure other things that I'm not even aware of. I think on a systems level, there needs to be more formal training. I need training. I'm sure I can improve on my own missteps, right? For providers engaged in clinical trials, even clinical care, trial staff, there should be training on cultural humility, implicit bias mitigation, recruitment strategies. I've seen a lot of discussions about this, but I haven't seen any opportunities to really work on it, honestly. And I would love to, to work on it. And then I think on the patient-facing side, there's, there could be more engagement for more grassroots organizations within communities or educational materials on, on what is a clinical trial. And then I think on the pharmaceutical end, appropriate stipends for patients are really important. You know, they're missing work to come in for these visits. And I even trying to negotiate for parking, like I can't get patient parking, like it's a silly thing, right? But if you if you have to pay for parking every time you're coming in, you know, very frequently and you're missing work and you're only getting a small stipend, like this can affect decision making of going into a clinical trial. I think everyone has work to do and I would love to be involved and in, in to learn, have the opportunity to engage in more formal training. Right, right. I mean, I, I think... Some of our larger organizations are actually kind of taking this, which I think has been really encouraging myself to see. But I think making sure that that expands out to the communities where patients are actually being cared for, I think it's such an important part of this picture. Yes, is desperately needed. You know, honestly, right now, the only thing that I'm seeing in real time is the site visits being asked how many racially diverse patients do you think you can recruit? How many patients do you see that are that are non-Caucasian in your practice and and that might be amenable? What are the types of races that you see in clinic is really all I, I see as a difference in the last couple of months. Right. Understood. Well, we do have the AJA doing this wonderful podcast to try to reach out and make this a priority in clinical trials. I completely agree with you. We need to be doing more. The last question I have for you is, what advice do you have for community-based gastroenterologists interested in getting more involved with clinical studies? Well, I think it's probably multi-pronged, right? You need, first, you need to get participatory support from your group. You can't do this alone. And there is some startup fees that are required in order to set up the infrastructure. You want to invest well, build a good team get the appropriate equipment and computer systems, et cetera, so that you can run efficiently and smoothly. 
And again, start with a varied portfolio of studies, some that might be more complex, but others that are more simpler study designs that might be easier to complete. Seek mentors, resources, other people in the community. Lots of people in the community are doing this and are happy to help compare notes. Think sustainably and make sure to protect your time. Uh, This is not a nights and weekends activity. There does need to be some protected time during the day to support your staff and to oversee the entire study team. Obviously, you know, we should always be putting patient care first. and, And if we do that, I think, you know, a sustainable and viable program can be built. Thanks to our guest, Dr. Erica Cohen, and all of you for joining us on today's episode. Be sure to check out the other episodes in our series on diversity and IBD trials. This program is made possible by support from an educational grant from AbbVie Incorporated, Amgen, Bristol Myers Squibb Company, Genentech, a member of the Roche Group, Janssen Biotech Incorporated, administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC, and Decatur Pharmaceuticals USA Incorporated, and a quality improvement grant from Pfizer Incorporated. Thanks for listening to Inside Scope, an official AGA podcast. Make sure to subscribe to be notified as we roll out new episodes. For more GI education, visit AGA University at agau.gastro.org.